probably should. I think we should. So today we're interviewing Maestro Craig, Craig Keir. He's I worked with him at Brevard this summer. He was my conductor for Cenerentola. He is just sort of a gem of a human and a musician. And I just had a that I was I had a ball this summer, and he was a big part of it. Him and my director were a big part of that. Obviously, the cast as well. But our leadership was definitely a reflection of how much fun we had. So um, I wanted to bring him on today because he is exemplary as a as a musician and as a human being in so many ways that I wanted to catch up with him and record that catch up. <laughs> very kind of you, my gosh. So I feel like that's something you should have said at the very end, right at the very beginning, because it's a hard act to follow that. So, <laughs> so um, you were just talking about the uh, availability of information yeah. that young singers have. So you're a teacher at UMD, you're mm -hmm. also just a conductor professionally yeah. and work sort of yeah so we were talking about how there's there's so much information available but what's not immediately available is how to put it into context and so right. what we were saying was the difference between a professional singer or say a student somewhere in the educational system they bring in Musetta's Waltz for the first time what is the difference so um, if you're learning the aria and you have no idea where it fits and you're a student and it's a really famous aria, mm -hmm. you may <laughs> look at YouTube first right. and have no idea that Musetta's Wall Center is an act two. Right. And that that's the very first thing you do. Um, and so, so it's this idea of like, where does this information fit into something that's helpful for a singer? Because all of these isolated... Right things that are floating out in the universe and you can you can yeah you can access all these amazing recordings but yeah. you didn't hear um, you know the the four minutes before the aria yeah or, or what people have said about Musetta exactly. until then yeah exactly and so how do you inspire someone to dig a little deeper because actually you do have to work harder to dig deeper now because that's not the first thing that yes. comes up when you do a Google search right Absolutely. so you you were saying that you were almost forced into more education because you had to do that work before yeah. bringing it into an audition versus us, which you can just get away with listening to a recording, having, you don't even have to write in your translation because often they're written in for us or some sort of yeah. poetic translations written in for us in some editions and we're just sort of along for the ride versus you. Right, so I mean, I sound so old now, but I, YouTube was not a thing. I mean, right. email had just started being used when I was younger. Right. And so, when I auditioned for grad school, everybody had an AOL account. It wasn't even that. I mean, I think I, I yes, yeah, everyone had an AOL. Yeah. So the old Apple computer um, and the dial-up, you know, internet and everything. And I'm not that old. Um, but for some reason, like the the like actually learning an aria took so much more time because I had to even find. Yeah where the aria was. Oh, you yeah. had to go to a library. I had to go to a library and flip through the score <laughs> and I had to like get out the record. Right. Or like if there was a CD that had just been made, you could listen to that and you could maybe flip through it. Yeah. But then even when you're looking at a CD, you can see where it fits. You yeah. can see, the oh, yeah. oh this is later on. Yeah. Right, so obviously that's, there's yeah. 16 things happening <laughs> yeah. before it. So, and I, I feel like that's so valuable because you, you don't even realize you're learning context when you're looking into it that way. Right, exactly. And so that, that's, I think, the big thing that I'm, I'm just more aware of in an educational environment, of how, how do you right. inspire and encourage someone to seek more details beyond what's readily available when you first look for something. So do you have a process that you ask your students to ascribe to? Yes. Like, do you open the full score, for example, and yes. then from the full score you write into instrumentation, or what's, yes. your, what's your process? So in order to have a coaching, the idea is that they have done of course translating, but they've listened to the whole score with both the piano vocal and the full score, and that they have some idea of even like vocally how this fits in. So if you come in and sing Juliet's Waltz, right. that's totally different right. than the potion aria yeah, that happens exactly. later on. And so having some yeah, idea of duets. This, yes, exactly. <laughs> or you sing Michaela, and the only other thing you really have is this duet that's really yeah, exactly. important, but sometimes people don't realize that actually the role is pretty short. Right. How big yeah. a role is that? Right. So, uh, this so yes, there is absolutely a process that I um, encourage people to do and write out and we talk about ad nauseum. Mm -hmm. But then I realize that there's other forces that don't encourage those things um, because uh, we're all about the thirty second sort of yeah. news clip. I mean, yeah. even now New York Times is doing like a thirty second news yeah, exactly. review thing. 
So what does that mean for, for right, how, exactly. how to create this idea of focus and not, you can't rush through that process of learning things. So Where do you think that singers go wrong? Like young singers go wrong when they come to you? I think um, where they go wrong is that there has never been more information that they have access to that they've already learned, yeah. but they don't yet know how to put into practice because they haven't thought about it critically. So I think it's that idea of like, critical thinking mm -hmm. and um, that feedback is simply feedback there are opinions there's there's better ways to do things but there's oh, not I right see. and wrong all this I mean rhythm is right and wrong right diction diction might be a <laughs> but diction depending on I mean there's a better you know there's a way in which we can understand that it sounds like you're singing in German and if you're not and it depends on yeah, where exactly. someone is from and all right. those things. yeah but then there's also this idea of like how to explore and not sing something the same way you did the first time you right. did it. Yeah. Right. I yeah, mean, exactly. you know, we like we we because we habitually create these 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 ruts yeah. that are just repetition. Yeah. And how often do repetition is it ultimately unintentional? And that's really, I think, to me, like as I try to become a better artist, and when I listen to people who know more than I do say what's really important, it is making each time a little bit different. Right. So you have to be constantly present in that moment. Like let's say I've sung the Counts aria more times than anything else. Mm -hmm. And it would be really easy to do, say like, I don't mean de la causa, the same way every single time. But I think that if you are a smart artist or a, an aware artist, you will, every single time you will think, that means something different to me this time. Even even like slight shades of intention. Yeah. And I think that that is maybe how the one of the steps from going from student to right. professional. And this idea that that it should have a, a freshness every time. I mean, yeah. the hope would be that you would sing the count for years and be involved right. in so many productions. And so, what are the variations that are going to make it different? You're going to be surrounded by different colleagues. Yeah. You're going to have a different conductor. You're going to have a different director. The production is going to be completely different. But when you're singing the Count, you're on, when you're singing Ajaven de la Causa, you're on stage by yourself often. Most often. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so, how do you make certain that you're still doing it differently, even if you're dressed in different clothes? Yeah. Um, and when you hear singers that have, have, um, mastered the art of improvisation on stage. Yeah. It's a pretty glorious thing to be part of. Who does that? For, who's the first person when you think of a singer who masters that? And let's just say it's improvisation, but it's also just being totally present in their dramatic moment. So, I think Eric Owens oh. is, yeah. oh. is, is um, a stellar example of that. Yeah. Um, I think Larry Brownlee does that beautifully. I mean, he has um, this sense of the way he sings intuitively in the, because of the, the, the repertoire that he sings. Also. Right. There, there's an yeah. improvisatory feel to it. But um, he can spin a phrase different every time in a way that's mm -hmm. just spellbinding. I mean, truly. Yeah. And there's, I think there's lots of people that do it, but how do we encourage that? And how do you, how can a young singer hear that and notice that it's different? That's... That's a really, I think that was a big question that I know I grappled with for a long time. And I think that a different term for that is make a choice. Right. We just want to see you make a choice. And in acting school and in, you know, the different yaps, I was like, does that mean mm -hmm. make a choice? Yeah. What does that mean to you? So, um, I'm fine with disagreeing with the choice. I just need to know that you have an opinion and a point of view and that mm -hmm. you have made a decision. And... As a conductor, I know that you've made a decision based on the breath that you take. Right, <laughs> okay. right, right, right. Like that, that, that's to me what says, ah, okay, you've got a point of view. And it starts in the first music rehearsal. Mm -hmm. So if someone in the first music rehearsal is looking to me for all the answers, it means, I mean, I, I can't give you all the answers. I'm actually trying to find right. out what you want to do. Right. And how can I help you? Because I grew up at the piano bench. So I right. grew up collaborating with singers and supporting them. So I, I think my job as a conductor is to support and sometimes to drag, yeah. <laughs> sometimes to push, but hopefully walk hand in hand a lot and give the information to the orchestra that, that they need. But I, I'm i listening to everything that's going on, even in the first music rehearsal, and also like noticing like, oh, this person's made a decision that is not anything like this other person. Right. And people aren't even listening to each other to notice that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think, the, I think the thing that I 
it was a journey for me to learn what is what is appropriate conductor singer obedience for uh, lack of yeah, a better word yeah. and at what point do I say this is my choice because you want to be you want to be we're taught so so often heavy-handedly to be uh, agreeable to be a team player to be a part of a team to be subservient in some respects and where do you say that yes I'm a part of a team but this is still my choice do you yeah. know what I mean without oh, like, smacking the conductor over the head and saying what point, follow me at what yeah. point does that no longer yeah I mean, there's there's so much psychology involved. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, we're all Mian psychologists um, in need of deep amounts of therapy. <laughs> or giving therapy. Um, but um, I I always respond positively to someone who um, who comes forward with a solution. Yes. And, and and basically says, you know, I'm having trouble doing this. So what can we do instead? Could we try it this way? Yeah. And then. You know, now that's me. I know maybe right. not everyone would, but what I know is if right off the bat in the first music rehearsal, someone's like, "Oh, that's not going to work." Yeah. Like, well, right, right, right. You're not even trying. Well, right. <laughs> and also, like, what sort of right. collaborative? I, that's just like it's like you know, have some social cues and some sort of grace and like understand yeah. that you're in a working environment. Right. It's might not. It it might not ever work, but you could say, you know, Maestro, I love what you're doing there. Could we take that a little bit slower just for me? Yeah. Sorry, I'm so dumb. No, it, well, you don't even have to say that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Lucas Meacham has that aspect down there. Like, it's totally, like, it's totally my fault. So, but the other thing that I, I know I noticed about you, Caroline, right away in the rehearsal room in Brevard is that you paid attention to everything that was going on when you weren't on stage. And so if you came to me with something, I took it more seriously. Because you were, you weren't, on stage doing your thing and then walking away and you're on your cell phone. Oh, like you were, you were either like on the side watching and supporting your colleagues and laughing at what was funny um, <laughs> or what was not funny sometimes too, um, or like behind, but you were an active member of the ensemble even as the title character. Right. So that meant you were invested in every part of it. Whereas, yeah. you know, if, if you're not that way, you're, you're maybe going to, you know, not have as right. much because you're not building a relationship right. with someone. So right. with a conductor, with a director, you're, you're building a relationship with them from the moment you meet them. Yeah, exactly. And it's not supposed to feel like you're in a dog park where you're just chasing each other. Yeah. Um, but that you actually get to know each other in some way. And, and that you observe, like, oh, this is these are the values that this person has on the, on the creative team. Yeah. And hopefully we get to know these are the values that you have as a singer. And how do we meet in the middle? Mm-hmm. And it, gosh, the amount of times that all those people are on the same page or can find a way to negotiate that, I can kind of one hand that I've been part of. But the idea of it happening again is what keeps me going. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that it could happen. And that, yeah. you know, sometimes it's in like the, 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 the scenario that you would never imagine would be great. You can work in a really big company and it's a totally unfulfilling experience. So you go to a yeah. really small company with limited resources and be surrounded by people that are, are wonderful artists that are there for all the right reasons and it ends up being hugely rewarding and no one actually sees it. That, right. You know, it doesn't get reviewed by some sort of major press. Right, and that's exactly. okay. I mean, that's what makes it kind of fun that's something that I think about all the time it's like what am I actually like what am I doing this for and like what I want my path to be would I be satisfied just having you know like a group of musicians and friends that I really respect and we just like put on shows in a church or in our house Mm -hmm. you know and I think that that is that is something that's really special is when everybody kind of clicks and knowing why you're taking a gig you know is is you know, not putting pre- un- unneeded pressure on something if it's, you know, I'm going to take this and right. it fills a part of the calendar or, you know what, I really, I need to sing this role for the first time. I need to conduct this opera for yeah, the first exactly. time. Right. And, and, and being fully open about how that experience is going to somehow um, be an important part of your life, but not more important than it needs to be. <laughs> what was the first opera of that category? For you, like, what was the first opera that you said to yourself, I need to conduct this opera for the first time? Um, well, sometimes those choices are made for you yeah. rather than you mm-hmm. making them on your own. Yeah. Um, I mean, since I started as an assistant. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask most, about that. Most most of these operas have been things that have been part of my life for so long yeah. that, that I've led performances someplace, or I. I've played, I've, I've functioned as a music staff member in yeah. all sorts of places and, and have gotten into them so intimately well yeah. that it feels like a natural progression. It doesn't mean that it's all going to go you know, spectacularly well. Right. You're, you're going to say something about this. Right, system. I was going to ask about your time in Houston. 
school. So I was yeah. just curious about how that was, what, what it was like working with Maestro Sommers. Yeah, I mean, it was um, a fundamentally life-changing experience because yeah. it was making music at the highest level at all times, and the expectation was that you, that everyone there would be on their A game. Right. And that, that was that was just sort of like the bare minimum requirements. And so um, I was brought there um, by Patrick Summers because he was a very generous mentor. I played um, Paul Moravec's The Letter um, at Santa Fe, and he conducted, and I played the first music rehearsal. And um, he was immediately a very generous and kind person and said, you know, you should be doing more conducting. And up until that point, Anyone who had said that, I, I just said, no, that's okay. Like, I, I, I need to learn more scores. Or I, yeah. Like, that's, that's okay. That, that's for someone else to do. Right. Um, and so he brought me to Houston as the associate conductor and gave me, you know, a lot of opportunities and taught me a lot. But what I think the biggest thing I learned was, um, it was the importance of preparation um, and the importance of being calm on the podium. Um, and, and that um, my background as a pianist, is a real asset. Um, in a, it's a yeah yeah, and it's yeah. a it's a such a traditional non glamorous path. I mean, I, you know, totally. I, um, and uh, I mean the the first um, the first thing that I was responsible for conducting um, at HGO was actually the offstage music for Peter Grimes. And nice. so, um, hold on, wait. Yeah. Who's in the cast? So I mean, it was Anthony Dean Griffey. Uh, um, so I mean, yeah, it was, it was. Let's see. Hold on. Now the offstage music for Peter Grimes. That Michael's in Peter Grimes at the very end. So that, but then there's then there's the the Bonda stuff that happens, like you know the pub music that is uh -huh. in a different time signature uh -huh. than the rest of what's going on. And you know there you are, like okay, here we go. Forced to be calm at the podium. Yeah, but but I mean, um, you know, Patrick knew exactly what information he needed to give me to be successful. And that's right. also a huge lesson of like, what, what is the information that the conductor needs to give for everyone to be successful? So to yeah. get out of the way, so they can do their job. You don't need to conduct every single phrase yeah. at every single moment. Sometimes you actually just need to be, you know, right. really clear and let everyone yeah. else do their thing. <laughs> you know, in a big contratate in, in Verdi, you're not conducting every phrase because yeah. there's so much going on. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so um, I saw that being exhibited on a daily basis, and I learned a lot by leading rehearsals and, and eventually leading performances as well. So. I, I like to think of Patrick Summers always as, he kind of like epitomizes this for me. I've met him like once, and I've seen him conduct a couple of times, and I, I went to, to school in, in Houston, and so yeah. I, I just kind of know the, the aura, the yeah. legend. Yeah. I like to think of musicality and musicianship like the force, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to me, he is like, he is a powerful conductor of the force. Mm -hmm. Well, and he, um, I saw him and assisted him on, on a lot of bel canto operas and to see the way a phrase could be different every night. And the orchestra was right there and he was listening to the singer. He, he was, was doing exactly what, what we would hope that a music or a, a singer does right, with a different phrase. Right, yeah. And so, um, and, and he started as a pianist. So um, that was really important for me to see um, and he's he's an advocate for the next generation of musicians. I mean, he's conducting Susanna right now at Rice. Right. Um, Listen, I know <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm a Rice grad. <laughs> Olin Blitch was my very first <laughs> opera role, and oh god, it's I think I think Susanna is the most perfect opera that and Don Giovanni. And oh. uh, so, why do you think it's the most perfect opera? Uh, it is. It doesn't waste any time. Uh -huh. It is. Very clear, you know, like when I, I took a directing course, the first part of my undergrad, and we had to like break down all, you know, there's like the inciting incident all the way to like the denouement. There is really no uh, room for discussion about any of those pieces of the puzzle. It's very clear, all of them. I think the music is amazing. It's singer friendly. Yeah. It's dramatic. Uh, it's sensitive, and it also you can come away humming a tune, yeah. which is something that, and the libretto is very strong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All of the characters, I think that the, the main issue does blitch rape Susanna. I think that part of the reason that it's such an impactful and lasting opera is because that is such a great area. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and Susanna is an incredibly strong and powerful character. Mm -hmm. She's not just, you know, t I think that she, she could be like the uh, 20th century version of Violetta. Right. Uh, and Blitch is also a complicated character. Mm -hmm. You know, he's like a oily, oil, is he an oily used car salesman? Or, you know, how did he get so wrong on his path? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, what, 
And I think that it gives a lot of room for the interpreter, for the actors to come in there and, and make a choice. Yeah, and, and, and what does the audience at the end think the conclusion is? Like, or think actually happened? The, what, would the ambiguity, not dissimilar to Peter Grimes. Right. Oh. Dissimilar to so many of these, these operas. Like mob, where mob right. mentality is the, is yep. the antagonist. Exactly. And that we, we think something happened. And it's quite possible it did. I mean, no, no one is saying right. it didn't. But, yeah. but as each individual audience member reaches a conclusion that is sometimes vastly different. Yeah. Depending on where they're coming from. Right. I feel like that's a good sign of a good production if they yes. all come away with different right. opinions rather than being s smacked over the head with one interpretation. Or worse yet, as I was talking to recently with a colleague, like walking out of performance and feeling absolutely nothing. Oh, <laughs> you yeah. know, how, how was that performance? It's okay. Really? Yeah. I mean, at least hate it. Like, yeah, I mean, exactly. Right, so. Yeah. Apathy everybody, you got everybody's well. got to make a choice from the, from totally. you know, like the character tenor to you know the production as a whole. Right. right, and sometimes having a strong reaction of dislike means the opera did its job or the performance did its job. Too. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think if you walk away from Don Giovanni or Susanna, again, I, I always go back to those two because those are the, the operas that I know the best because mm -hmm. uh, I've been in them. Mm -hmm. um, I think that if you walk away from either of those feeling not unclean, then right. there's something you know wrong. With well, the people that see Don Giovanni for the first time, so we did it here at Maryland Opera Studio several years ago, and a member of the administration came and was was deeply troubled by Act right. One. Good. And yes, but it was interesting because you, you then, you know, I thought, but, you know, don't you know the story of Don Juan? But but was deeply troubled because of the parallels that 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 this person was able to draw to something they were facing at this very moment of trying to parse out, right. uh, you know, who Look did what in real time, like like right. modern day times. You mean we did our job with art? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason we exist. I mean, look, that's why we're doing this big Vile Festival, too, of yeah. talking about Kurt Vile um, as an immigrant, as a migrant, um, and, and what would our, what would our, the, the U.S. musical landscape be like without immigrants? Right. What, what, what would that? What would the U.S. The U.S. is immigrants. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But we can speak as experts as the, from the music world, so we may as yeah. well tackle what we yeah. can. What, what would film music be like if we didn't have all? Exactly. Uh, did? What would Broadway be like? What would? What would? I, I mean, it, you you actually can't strain out an answer to that, which is the very reason why we should acknowledge the importance exactly. of, of these these composers' backgrounds and um, why they came to the. Yeah. yeah, and exactly. then the pieces that they wrote when they got here, and so I'm fascinated by by Kurt Vile's constantly evolving sound world. Yes, and what it sounded like in the 1920s, and then how different it sounded when he started writing for Broadway. Yeah. and this idea of an American sound, and what is an American sound? And right, oh my gosh, it, every piece he wrote sounds so different, right. and, it's, and ultimately it's for a different instrumentation. Yeah, um, it, it's it's really quite something. He was it was a chameleon. Yeah. Sorts and writing for the popular people. Right, writing for exactly. the people. I mean, you read the, the the reviews sometimes from critics, and they're not very glamorous. But he didn't seem to actually be bothered or care about it. Right, it's not exactly. a people he was writing for. What? Yeah, I think something that's so I'm um, obviously a big fan of his music. I think something that's so fascinating about it is that even the stuff written in English doesn't age. Right. So no matter how disturbing it is, it's it was likely as disturbing then as it is to hear it now. That's right. Yeah. Or as joyful as it was then as it is to yeah. hear now, which yeah. is something that to me that's what makes it fit so deeply into the operatic sphere as yes. well because that's why I mean that's why we still love Verdi so much because mm -hmm. it just doesn't age. That's why we love Puccini so much mm -hmm. it doesn't age. It's just such a universal sound. It's a universal and like you said if it it can sound anything from dark and upsetting to really heartbreaking and sad to yeah. really beautiful in Americana mm -hmm. but it's so it's so accessible in a universal way and it touches mm -hmm. on us in a way that the greatest composers of all time have mm -hmm. what what do you guys think makes a because we just mentioned like a bunch of different composers right. across multiple centuries what makes a piece of music and or a piece of music with text, like an opera, what mm -hmm. makes it timeless? Um, what makes it timeless? Well, number one, access to it. 
Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. I mean, yeah. were able oh, yeah. to, that is step one. And so um, that we even know that it exists. It's sort of like that idea that a man dies twice when he breathes his last breath and when somebody says your name for the last time. Yeah. So, I mean, so I, I think the, you know, there, there, there has to be someone advocating for it to be performed. You know, like 50 years from now, where is Susanna going to be? Um, like, is it still going to be performed? I hope so. We would hope so. I'll still play Blitz. Yeah, right. So, I mean, <laughs> maybe. Um, and so, I mean, I, like, this probably gets into, like, the whole commercialization of music and, and like, who makes those decisions yeah. of what. Um, but what makes something timeless to me um, is that um, it rides a continuum of familiarity if you, if you hear it um, over and over again, but that every time you hear it, there's something new to discover. So it's not like playing a recording... Uh, the same way every time, but that as yeah. your perspective changes in life and as you have different life experiences, that you're you're going, wow. So so being part of a a production, you know, leading Bohème is going to feel different every time you're you're doing it because the, your point of access is that way, and that makes right. it timeless. That there are multiple perspectives you can have, and and even a a piece of symphonic music. I mean, when you listen to a Mahler symphony, yeah. I mean, there's, there's yeah, always... you hear something different every time. Yeah. For the first probably 25 times, and then after that, you have a different opinion on right. the same thing that you've heard. Yeah. And I guess it's it's you know timeless cannot be synonymous with good. Um, you know, timeless is something right. that that I you know it, when you hear Verdi's music, it still sounds like something that was written at a time period that is not now. Yeah. But the timelessness, I think, is the way in which it can continue to mean something. So. The sentiment of it, yeah, the I drama mean, of it, and the yeah. characters of the, the shows yeah, so and their marriage, motivations yeah. and all that. Yeah. Marriage of Fingro, why is that, you know, still, still I mean, such well, a yeah. Yeah. So yeah. timelessness is really tied to libretto. Um, I guess when we think about opera, the quality of the text is always going to have something to do with it. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I mean, so I think quality of it. And, the, and so Marriage of Fingro, why does that matter now? Well... On the Bernie Sanders read list, right. um, I mean, it just has to be right. Um, like the same things that were happening in 1786, right. it would still be happening now. Right, right. Like where does where does the middle class fit in? Where does the lower class fit in? Yeah. Who has the power? So there's that part, and then there's there's this men using their power in a way that is ultimately right. wrong. Yeah, you know. I mean, so what? How? What's the parallel to today? Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, so, exactly. And then that's very different than listening to the sextet and saying, "OMG, this is the best thing ever written." That doesn't necessarily yeah. make it timeless. It just makes it amazing. Right, right. And so it's not musical wallpaper. It really means something. Yeah. Like it really. And and people that that don't have access to that, I think, are really missing out an opportunity to explore. For themselves as an audience member, and 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 maybe to even walk out with some sort of illuminating thought and be motivated to have a conversation with someone because they may actually change their point of view or learn someone else's point of view. Yeah, that's a thing that I think is becoming a lost art very mm-hmm. quickly. Mm-hmm. Is just like if it, believing that you are, and not to I, by no means I think should we go political, but I just mean as we pay attention to like the general landscape of how people engage in dialogue both mm-hmm. in person and yeah. on the internet it's like if you have a differing point of view not only are you wrong and inferior but you are a bad person I not your is, idea yeah i think the part of the reason i'm off of facebook is because that's just only happening on facebook and yeah. it's just not happening in real life but i think because of our because of how prevalent social media is in our mm-hmm. life and how much of our times we spend just mm-hmm paralyzed in front of the screen like scrolling through whatever statuses and all that stuff like that becomes so close to our real life that Mm -hmm. we start to equivocate that with conflict and we start to think of that as real interaction when it's just someone doing this yeah do you know what i mean so what do you think is the role of the artist in society (laughs) um i think the role of the artist in society there's many things um Perhaps most important is to um, to not have there be a large glacial divide between what we do and what the audience role is. Like our roles are, are are much closer. You know, an audience and an artist, we are we are dependent upon each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and I think the classical music industry has done a better job in, mm-hmm. in not making it seem as though the artists are an elevated, uh, untouchable 
folk. Yeah. Um, and then I think our job is to, um, I guess we come back to like Kurt Vile again, <laughs> is to, to, to provide experiences that probe and question and not answer. And to, um, to create a space in which people can have whatever experience they can have at that very moment and to respect that. I mean, in any, any given performance, we have no idea where someone is coming from when they walk in the room, mm -hmm. when they walk in. And that collection of people will never happen again in the same way. And we don't know what their political persuasions, what their religion persuasions, what their sexual orientation is, right. what their, we have no idea. And that, that anonymous identity is something that is really sacred because it's maybe one of the only times that that can happen. Because yeah. on social media, yeah, exactly. We read a lot of things that we agree with because we're all friends with people that yeah, agree with exactly. us, right? Echo yeah, exactly. chamber, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, we see all the successes that people are having because yeah. everyone can make it seem fine when yeah. you're, when you're yeah, looking. Exactly. Yeah. Or we see all the down, the, yeah. the lows that someone's having, but it's like self-selected. And there's something amazing about even looking out as a performer at the audience and seeing, you know, people with tears in their eyes, people. Laughing right. people and and the yeah. the diversity of experience that they are having and I, and I think that's what our job as our artists is to continue to create those those as much as possible in every art form right um, and to make certain that um, that young people experience those as soon as possible. Yeah. So then let's talk about what we can do to make sure that every aspiring artist becomes the best artist that they possibly can be and specifically in, in the world that we know the best. Yeah. Going from student in the opera world, or student who comes into the university and says, I want to be an opera singer, I want mm -hmm. to be an actor, performer, whatever, mm -hmm. to that kind of self-actualized yeah. artist. Yeah. Where do you think the American yap system, from pay to sings all the way to a house mm -hmm. yaps, to uh, the conservatories and high-level colleges are, what do you think that they're getting right in their training? What do you think that they're getting wrong? Hmm. Do you really want to record this? Okay, so <laughs> you one hundred percent bet I do. Um, so, um, I mean, when the economy uh, downturn happened, it meant that a lot of places that, like this, a lot of the smaller opera houses in the U.S. that provided either performance opportunities for young singers that we're leaving high-level conservatory training. And when I say conservatory, it doesn't have to be conservatory, but a university or right. had, had, had collected the right skills that they were ready to exercise them right. outside of an academic institution. A lot of those opportunities went away. And that also meant that people were graduating, so to speak, from young Irish programs. And what were the performing opportunities that were available? Yeah. Gone. Gone. Yeah, so, we were just talking about this. My sister's an undergrad right now, and the amount of people that are out of graduate school doing Siegel and doing Brevard and doing opera in the Ozarks and all of that is it a program that was designed mainly for undergrads and maybe some early graduate right. students is now becoming a postgraduate yeah. and, and option when you're in your 30s and stuff like that. So it just everything gets pushed back. Exactly. Pushed back. And so now you have a really um, experienced singer that you know will sing a role at the Met and then we'll go to a really small company and sing a role. Yeah. And so that small company is perhaps benefiting from a higher level singer, but it also means that there's this, like the pipeline is getting jammed up. Yeah. And so there, I'm not sure I know what the answer is at all, but I'd like to be part of the solution if right. I can figure it and out. It is, and as I hear you put it that way, I think that maybe it's just a, maybe a, a framing that I'm putting on that, that mm -hmm. that is a, a less than optimal thing. Whereas if we accept that as like they're all, part of a greater community mm -hmm. and that that is a good thing right that that's just maybe like that's not how it used to be or maybe that is how it used to be and that that's how it has become again right and so I think um, one thing that universities need to do um, an increasingly better job is talking about the realities of the now oh god and so all right this is you know so so if if, um, if a university is filled um, with faculty that had tremendous careers, yeah. but their careers um, were were at the height of a different time. Yeah, exactly. That means that they're they're probably working with information that is no longer going to help their students. 
as far as what are the what are the performance opportunities available to you now? They don't know that you can get a job from a YouTube video. Right. right. Yeah, but also they were working when they were 23, 24, 25. And getting paid a fortune. Yes, exactly. The fee structure was totally different yeah. and all of that stuff. Yeah. That's something that I really wish that was... that I, I think I tried hard to, to get it as politely as I could, mm -hmm. but I wish that I had had more information about the realities of, let's say, fee structure. Right. Or about the timeline that it takes to generate the momentum to create a right. career that you can live on. Right. And so um, I think the other thing, though, is this is still a pretty um, old-fashioned business. It doesn't mean it's like out of date, but it's old-fashioned. So the sense of formality that exists in our business versus the sense of formality that exists in every other place in society. Um, and so even like the skills of like how to write an email. Um, you know, I, I, how many bad emails do you get? Um, a lot. Like, and they usually begin with, hey. Um, but like, I think what, I sent you a hey email. Oh, uh, but I know. No, no, no. But, but if you, so, so like what, how do you make sure that as a singer, you present yourself from the moment someone meets you in yeah. the best possible light? And you, what are, because it right. looks different now because because I can Google right. you and find a picture of you and find your right. Facebook page and yeah. see that like you know or a, a prospective right, exactly. person and oh wow this this singer like their profile picture is them with a drink in their yeah. hands like well I mean I don't know <laughs> so so how do you know all that information is around that that you right. can easily find and I think the other thing is is okay so singing. If singing is not your full-time existence, what can you do to be part of the art form that keeps you part of it? Mm. What are the ways you can advocate right. and still be an artist? What, how can you be a teaching artist? Mm. How can you... I mean, my wife um, went to CCM, sang for years, taught voice lessons also, and then she, when we moved to Houston, she decided that she wanted to, to, to um, focus on some other things, and she's now a fierce fundraiser. Yeah. I mean, she's a fundraiser for Kennedy Center or NSO or NSO. For, yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. And there's. Does she work? Uh, NSO and Kennedy Center are two. Is the NSO in the same structure inside of the Kennedy Center as uh, WNO? Yes. So they're. What are they? How do they call themselves? They're affiliate organizations, but, oh, but they okay. work in the Kennedy Center. And actually, um, Rebecca has just taken a job with Philadelphia Orchestra. <laughs> so she has just oh, loved cool. the NSO. So she's the. <laughs> Senior Director of Individual Giving for the Philadelphia Orchestra. Oh, nice. Yeah, good work, I said. Um, so, um, what's interesting, though, is, is like she has found a way to be part of the arts that supports them, that, that she can talk to a donor um, about... I mean, she doesn't have to manufacture the knowledge that she has, right. nor her enthusiasm and why yeah. she believes it's important. And I, I think we should acknowledge that like there's a place in the arts for all of the people that are being trained if they want to be part of it. It may look different than what they thought it was going to at first, yeah. but there's a way to be involved yeah. and to make certain that, that the training that they're getting in music school, I mean, those are all skills that are going to help you be successful in anything you decide. Right. If you, if you open your eyes to the broader picture of what you're learning. Yes. I mean, self-discipline, right. um, being able to balance all these multiple projects, not not thinking that something's going to come to you right away because it's it's all about this the right. slow burn yeah. and, and and better is better getting better is getting better right. and yeah. that's something to own and and, right. and those those are all transferable skills yeah so um, I think universities need to do an increasingly better job of, of also um, taking what I think this younger generation is looking for which is seems to me like action and and identifying a problem and creating a solution. Because I, I'm inspired by the young people that are part of my life at the university right. in seeing that they, they want to know what they can do. I mean, you know, again, we shouldn't get too political, but if gun control is going to be solved, it's right. the generation right now that's in colleges and in, in, in oh, high school yeah. that yeah, are going to exactly. be the ones that are going to solve yeah, it. Absolutely. Exactly. And, as it is with, I think, you know, anything. And I think that climate if, change if, is going to be solved by that. Right. If we don't screw this up, yeah. we can have a massive massive impact and create like the I, I love seeing like memes that say you know 50 years ago we thought we were going to have like flying cars and a cure for cancer and now yep. we're eating Tide Pods right and I love <laughs> you know so I love really and I love seeing I, I just yeah. I'm so fascinated and inspired by the idea that it's like if we can actually like 
come together and like really figure out how to have dialogue and do all the stuff we've been talking about, we can make that happen. Yeah. Like within our lifetime, flying cars, cure right. for cancer. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm really frustrated. Are you a Harry Potter fan? I'm. I. I am married no. to a Harry Potter. I'm really. <laughs> I'm really frustrated no. that I can't apparate someone. You know, I wish that I could do Use that. Use the flu powder. No, I want to apparate. I don't even want. I just want to be like. I gotta go. I gotta go. Yes, that's what I, I would love. That. Um. What, God, what were we saying right before that? The. Dialogue. Role of the artist in society. Yeah. Or, oh, what what well, we what are, what are the are gaps in the training systems? Yeah. But also, what are they doing well? Yeah, I mean, I think. So I mean, there, there are there have never been more universities that you can go to. Yeah, exactly. To to um, to have uh, an education, in, we we can you know we can yeah. judge individually the the value of, of maybe certain institutions depending on what you're looking for. But but a music education is something that's readily available in, in universities all over the place. And I think that's great. Um, I think that's that's a benefit and a bonus. Um, I think the things that they're doing well um, are continue to be that, that like US singers are the best educated. Yeah. <laughs> they are. They I mean they they are, they, are we the best singers? I think that's that's the well. I've heard the people that go to that's what Madison was saying is that the singing that co- that comes oh, out of the United mm-hmm. States is is so and actually the teacher in New York was saying mm-hmm. that the singing that comes out of the United States is the gold standard. So, but that might not that might so be and I I've heard people say that before. I don't think I have the perspective that would would help right. sort of compare those things. But what yeah. I know to be true for many people is that while we are creating maybe the best technicians. Mm. Are we really creating the the most yeah. um, complete artists? Mm. Ooh, that's so, a... you know what what is what is what is um what are the things that you need to be thinking about um, in order to be a complete artist? And I think that's where like balance comes into play. Yeah. So um, what balance is it out for you? Like what what do you think besides having amazing technique and being a great you know just great at reading reading notes and doing that? Mm-hmm. What else do you turn to to help enrich your artistic sensibilities, make you a better artist? So, um, being a dad. No, kid. Wait, tell us more. <laughs> so, I, we have two young boys, um, which is why I look so tired. Um, <laughs> so, Cooper, who is six, and Henry, who is eighteen months, um, and so they are. You know, they absolutely make me. I mean, they make me a better human being in every way because they teach you things that you didn't realize you needed to be taught or retaught. Yeah. And they are experiencing so much of life for the first time. And so um, it teaches me that, again, the default switch for human beings is to look for joy. And that we we manage to screw that up along the way somehow. But, yeah. I mean, all Henry wants to do is laugh. Now, yeah. it may be really dangerous what he's doing <laughs> in order to laugh, and that's where we have to, you know, that's where parenting comes Put in. the scissors down. Exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's, you can hear that maniacal laugh. He has red hair, so. Um, the little demon. <laughs> but, um, I mean, Caroline, you saw Cooper in Privard this summer. Yeah. And um, he will come to a opera rehearsal and sit there yeah. and just watch. And he walks away with really, like, like, oh, that, that was interesting. He'll always say to me, well, if, you know, if we turn on the radio and there's something, there's classical music, and he loves all kinds of music, so, I mean, yeah. he, we don't just listen to opera. Yeah. Um, but he'll immediately say, what are they saying? What's this about? If, if it's something that he doesn't know. And I'll say, well, what do you think it's about? And he'll usually yeah. come pretty close yeah. to what it is. Um, so being a dad is a big part of what makes me, I think, a, just a hopefully even a better human being. Um, and then... Um, I mean, my the importance of running in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a runner. Um, yeah, I see this. Uh, you're yeah. your greatest runner. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so so you're an Adidas guy. So uh, that's from the Boston Marathon. Okay. So Maestro yeah. would run on every break. I feel like every break we had, I would see Maestro running. Almost every single break, you were on a run. I am. Um, so when I am away from my family, that's the time in which I yeah. need to make sure I'm making use of all that time. Because I, I can't run as regularly right now, at yeah. least. Um, it's still an important part of my life, but I'll run twice or three times a week instead of you know six times a week. Yeah. How, how far, how fast? Um, I'm getting slower in my 40s, <laughs> which is humbling, <laughs> which sucks. Um, and so, I mean, I, 
I used to run three-hour marathons, and I'm I'm you know not running three-hour marathons <laughs> right now. Um, but I I mean a, a regular long run is ten to twelve miles, and um, that's really important to me, and, and that's what my I work a lot of things out when yeah. I'm running, um, and it's not like a I don't pound the pavement in a way that's like meant to release stress, but it, it's amazing what gets worked out by just having some time to yourself. And I don't listen to music when I run. Right. I just you just are aware of things. And so I get to know, every time I move, go to a city, I get to know that city by running and running on different paths. And even if I can't find a path, I just start running and I figure it out. And, and that's, and so like learning like what the running community is or like what, what do people do in a city that keeps them fit? And so actually in Houston, the Memorial Park was the place. Right, yeah, exactly. And, and I, I mean, I, we ended up living near Memorial Park, so I could, I could run there with Cooper and the stroller and run yeah. around a couple times. I think times. that is the only and last time I ran. Really? Oh, my gosh. It's so, so we started dating. Yeah, oh, how funny. Yeah. And that's the thing is running is not for everyone. But what I love about a place like Memorial Park is that you see something like running is for Every Everyone kind in Houston, of person. especially, yeah. which yeah. is such a multicultural city. Yeah. Every single God, type Houston's of person is running yeah. Memorial Park. Yeah. So you see, you know, someone who's probably never run a mile before yeah. was trying. I mean, I met there was a guy that would always run backwards around Memorial <laughs> Park, and I could never <laughs> figure out probably, why. You probably saw him. That looked really dangerous. Yeah. Um, and then you know, you there's there's something amazing about this this uh, this thing that. Everyone can do it. Anyone can do it. And even running a marathon. There's people yeah. running a marathon for the first time or yeah. half marathon for the first time. And you see they're like walking and then running. And they're, it's a huge accomplishment. And that's that is awesome. Have you read the Haruki Murakami book, What I Talk About When I Talk About yes, It? Yes, I have. I love yeah. that book. Yeah. Um, okay. Can you just tell me what it's like when you hit that wall that he talks about? It's terrible. Yeah. And I didn't hit the wall until I turned 40. So I, you would just run a twenty six point two, and it, it was just and it was fine, and mentally that, and physically. Yeah, yeah, I just that's I insane. Was, I was really lucky, <laughs> um, and so that wall, um, it feels like you can't lift your feet up. And does it just happen? Are, are you just once the, the step so, right before that is fine? So like, um, you know, when when you're driving on the highway, and the accelerator is down, and everything's just your car is running efficiently. Yeah. And then suddenly your car breaks down and just kind of goes, and you don't yeah. know what happened. That's what the wall is. It just It's like within two steps. I mean, you just, you, you're suddenly like, oh, I, oh, God. oh. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's going fine until it's not. And so what is your, what's your mental dialogue like when you hit that? Um, shit. <laughs> or like, I didn't think that was going to happen. Like, yeah. really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can't say that I've perfected like the best way to get over it because it's a new experience for me. But you've right. gotten over it though. You've you've hit yeah. the wall and completed it. Yeah, and completed it, yeah. But um but I'm not sure I know the best strategy. Can yeah. I get back to you in a year? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What I know though is that um like there's so when you run Boston, you know, the streets are lined for twenty six point two miles. Yeah. With people yelling and screaming. It's amazing. When you run in Houston in the marathon like you run through all these like cool neighborhoods when you run in Austin that's the place to run a marathon because oh, yeah? you um I've never seen more amazing signs so first of all at the start line the first year I ran Austin Austin Texas not Boston um there was uh there was a sign uh you know there's 20 some thousand people running and someone had a sign up that said where are you all going <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then when you start running to the neighborhoods, they're they're all having house parties and drinking, and there are people with signs that say "cocktails for quitters." <laughs> <laughs> and then there's like all the signs that like are part of every marathon. You know, worst parade ever. Yeah. Um, there are easier ways to get a free banana. Yeah. Um, this felt like a good idea. A yeah, year ago. yeah. You know yeah. all that stuff. So. Um, that wasn't your question. What was your question? How do I get over the wall? Oh yeah, like yeah. Well, like you hit the wall, and uh, first of all, I love hearing that because I didn't know that there was like such a cool uh, culture around oh. around marathons, both for yeah. spectators and participants. Yeah. But you know, like okay, so like you hit the wall, and then like what is going through your head to keep you from quitting? So usually, runners are very generous people, and they will usually know what's going on. And so as people come by, they will say like, "You can do it! Come on!" Like they, amazing. they're super supportive. That's really cool. And, you know, in, in any number of cities, like, spectators will be like, you got this. Like, sometimes your name will be on the bid. Right. And the, come on, Craig, you got this. And that's amazing. <laughs> Go, Craig. Yeah. I mean, like, it, you know, or like, you know, you, you're almost there, which is not helpful. Like, 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 I'm actually not. Shut up. I feel terrible, and I'm not almost there, so why do you love me? Like, I, I, yeah, that's a fact, right? Yeah. 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 Rhythm is right or yeah, wrong. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm nowhere I'm not, near not the end. I have 10 miles left. Yeah, I know. God, no. Um, thankfully, the wall has not hit me with 10 miles left. But still, like, six <laughs> miles if you have a wall. Or, like, you know, if you're a yeah. mile 22 and you have 4.2 miles to go, it yeah. feels like, oh. Yeah. So the other thing that really helps, though, is running in pace groups. So there's, there's almost always in a marathon, like, a yeah. pace group. So if you link up with a pace group, their goal is to be continuous you know, a consistent pace. Yeah. And they're they're gonna be um the, there's usually two pacers in each group and those are those are usually folks that run a marathon that is, you know, a half hour faster than the time of their run or something right. like that. And that is a really great yeah. way to like not hit the wall or if you hit the wall they know exactly like come on or they'll yeah. give you like a you know, they'll give you a, a salt pill to take to kind of yeah. get your body going yeah. again and the so the only time I ever ran any time that was impressive to me in 10th grade I ran it because this kid was just ahead of me my friend Sam Legrand he was like 50 feet ahead of me the whole time and I ran a 5.59 or like 6 wow. minute mile <laughs> but that I mean so chasing someone I yeah. could not repeat yeah. it yeah so here's the thing about running like a marathon is that your goal is to be efficient not out of breath like that you should yeah. be able to carry on a conversation yeah and so it needs to be something that you enjoy yeah. that your that your body is 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 not exhausted because you can't do you can't sprint yeah for that long and not everyone wants to do it I get that I mean yeah. that, that's so if you if you're run a 5k and like that's the right thing for you to do if that you know if the couch to 10k couch, or right. couch to what's so, it called couch to 5k couch to 5k I don't know I, t- I ran a half I ran the Houston half marathon yeah. and I did it with almost no training, <laughs> but it was it was fine and yeah. I was running before. But I was we were that was miles before, which yeah. is not that big of a yeah. We would do the jump. we would do uh, Memorial Park twice. Yeah, yeah, great. Which so about six, six miles. miles. Yep. Yeah, so yeah. it wasn't that, but I ran that without any training and it was pretty 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 okay. But I. I'm not familiar with there's the a, marathon. There's training. a big difference between a half marathon and a full. Yeah, marathon. yeah exactly. <laughs> but then people, but then people who run like ultra marathons, like. Have right. you read David Goggins' book? No. I'm gonna send this okay. thing to you because that that's a different breed. Because yeah. you know, there's what 50 people that are running this hundred yeah. mile race in in Death Valley. Or yeah, something. and what do you you know you you have to like store food along the way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you have to run for 24 hours. Like, you know, you, no. have, a, you have a headlamp on so you can see yeah. at night. Like, that's... Yeah, that's yeah, insane. I, David yeah. Goggins' book is going to is gonna blow okay. your mind. Okay. It's going to be great. Anyway, it's good. I Maestro, think, I think... Yeah. Yeah, I think it's probably time to wrap up. And thank you so much. A good Go musician ahead. is nothing if not punctual. That's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> Shout out to Richard Bader for that oh. one. Uh, okay, Maestro?